You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Well, hello, everyone. It's Sean Bradford once again opening this episode. Just want to quickly let you know that our Crowdfunding Nerd course launch has now ended. However, we are extending the coupon code for the 65% discount for our podcast listeners till the end of the month. So if you want to get the course for $209 instead of its regular price of $599, you can still do that by using the podcast code, which is podcast2023. And you can pick up the course at a 65% discount only until the end of this month, January 2023. So without further delay, we'll get into this episode's topic. Five early assumptions that might kill or at least stunt your campaign. I find that people make assumptions at the very beginning of their game design effort. This is especially true with video games, but also with board games. They make some assumptions about how their audience will receive the product and who their audience is and that sort of thing. And they are wrong, but they run headlong for years in that direction. And then when the product releases, they find out how wrong they were. And I'm really jealous because in your background, I see your Skyrim box and it's in a string wrap <laughs> and mine hasn't come yet. So. Yeah. Dude, so I sh I'm so excited about that. It's not, not only did we get to market it on GameFound, but now that I have it, I mean, everything that I've read about it just makes me more and more excited. And I just, Christy and I are really excited to play it. It's like, man, I can't wait to dive into that rule book. I know it's going to be big and chonky and I'm going to stumble around, but that's great because I'll be stumbling around in Skyrim. So yeah. just like just like old times. It's fun because it's a game I, I played with my, my wife sort of looking over my shoulder. So it's nice that we could actually play it together now. So I think that's the benefit of this. It's, it's like co-op. Cool. You can like work together. And whilst yeah. the, the video games, like only one person can play. Mm -hmm. You're kind of a spectator, so... Yeah, I'm looking yep. forward to getting it. Mine doesn't come because there's strikes in the UK because of Royal Mail. So I think that's why it's delayed. So I don't I anticipate I won't be getting it anytime soon. It's <laughs> uh, unfortunate. You know, I mean, people wanted the product by Christmas and they were kind of grumpy that they weren't going to get it in some cases. But I think that Modifius actually was really smart in the way that they responded by giving a lot of people a $50 store credit. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money that they invested into their fans. But I, I actually, I look at Modifius, uh, the more that we work with them, the more I enjoy working with them because I just feel like they treat their fans as very important, you know, and like they matter. They don't, they certainly don't feel like a company that's treating people like um, a dollar sign. And mm. that's one of the reasons I, I really act, I really enjoy working for them. And on the back of that, Modifius has just released their 2D20 World Builders program. And what this is, is a way for you to partner with Modifius using their 2D20 role-playing game system, tabletop role-playing game system. And they are going to help you with business strategy. They're going to provide some resources. They're going to really like shepherd and mentor first-time creators or I suppose any creators who wants to, use, want to jump and create their world using their system. Some advantages is that their system is well-tested. So if you want to focus on story and on world building, well, then adopting their system is a great place to start. They do take a commission on the things you sell, but 
you know, for what they're providing, I think it's quite reasonable. I think it's, a, it's something it's great. Like 20% that, commission. And that's only for the source books that use their system. So if you were to create like t-shirts that were based on your world, well, you earn all those rights. So you could kind of do like a George Lucas thing where, you know, George Lucas, his films were originally owned by the studios. And then once he became popular and made money through merchandise, he was able to buy the rights to his his uh, Star Wars and make the subsequent films completely independent of, of the studio networks. So that might be a really good place for people who are developing a tabletop role-playing game to, to jump in. And we'll clearly link in the show notes for you. Check out. On that topic, this uh, so there's this thing going on with Wizards of the Coast and their open gaming license. And that has uh, thrown the tabletop world into an uproar. And it's my understanding that Modifius has been working on this for a long time, you know, allowing people to partner with them to create content using their 2D20 system. And that's what Dungeons and Dragons has done in their fifth edition for fifth edition. So we've marketed a ton of tabletop role-playing games that use the 5E uh, rules. And you have a lot of companies in the past that have used the open gaming license, like in movies or books or other things like that. You've got uh, various like races, like uh, half elves and, you know, other, other, you know, other things. Yeah. Beholders and whatnot that were allowable under the open gaming license. And it is uh, pretty, it's, I mean, it's clear that wizards of the coast intends to change that. There was a draft document leaked of their open gaming license. 1.1 is what they call it. Um, So, that just made everyone really upset. Well, I think the most concerning thing about this 1.1 update, and by the way, you can't find the original on their website anymore, so they've taken it down. So that's what makes it kind of... Internet is forever, Wizards. Yeah, which, well, you have to use like archive websites to, to find yeah. it. So that's kind of concerning that they they kind of want to hide that this document existed. <laughs> yeah. But one of the most concerning things from what I can see is that this updated document has a clause which says that they can change the agreement at any time and only give you 30 day notice, which is essentially saying we can do whatever we want. <laughs> you have no power. And, and I think that's a, that's a very bad clause to have in, in, in an agreement. It's the same type of clauses you have on Facebook and all these big tech companies. This is, which essentially allows them to do whatever they want. It kind of makes agreement null because it's yeah. like, Hey, we, we hold all the cards. You're completely beholden to us <laughs> to, give, mm-hmm. to give the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of companies that have made money off of that five, off of making fifth edition supplements. And that has, and it's basically that open gaming license made fifth edition the most popular tabletop role playing game system because it was easy to create content for it. And Wizards of the Coast encouraged you to create content for it and just said, hey, do this. And, profit from it and whatnot we we love it that our, we're we're supporting our community the the original uh crafter of the open game license promised that it would be free forever and or that it would be open and available forever so you know a lot of people really you know took that to heart and you have some companies that make all of their money from fifth edition supplements and that is really a big problem right now for for those people I think that's what they're trying to target with this. They want to basically get a commission or a royalty from these big companies that are making, you know, substantial yeah. amounts from what I think in, in their view is their IP, their, you know, their stuff. So you could argue, well, that, that sounds fair, but I think the way to go about that is to partner with people 
and have like a partnership program, not like we're going to sue you <laughs> and then we can change this yeah. at any time. And that's, I think that's the kind of vibe people got. Again, the, the document that was leaked is, is it a draft? You know, it wasn't really meant for public viewing. So a lot of this is speculation. I think, I think it's telling because they haven't come out. Like I, we will put a link in the show notes. I was able to find a, a brief update from Wizards of the Coast or, or beyond D&D. I think that was where they published it, giving a, a short update on it. They made some clarifications. But they do intend to make changes to this document. And it's very clear that through this little update, which we'll include in the show notes, is that they're intending to target the big players. Yep. And uh, yeah, so it's it's <laughs> they're able to just say, hey, the thing that made $750,000 this year, that's ours now, you know, and we, we need to make a substantial portion of profit from from that. And, and from, you know, from your sales as a company, I mean, it, it was, it was really gnarly, but, but rather than dive into the specifics, I feel like the, this deserves its own podcast episode, the, uh, which we'll probably do very soon with somebody much smarter than us in the tabletop RPG world. But uh, Chris Birch, you just emailed me right now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The, the thing that is very interesting to me, and I, I use interesting on purpose because this is a crowdfunding or a, a podcast about crowdfunding marketing and, and that sort of thing. It's very interesting to me for all of those creators that are developing RPGs and in their own worlds and in using their own systems. That is a very good thing because when, you know, Wizards of the Coast shoots themselves in the foot, the dungeon masters that have been, you know, really the, the DM or, or whatever you call it, the overlord that is leading the players through this story that they craft in, in their world and whatnot, they are going to be more open to adopting other systems because there are going to be less. Really, I think the, the net result is that there will be fewer fifth edition things. So they're going to be more open to other systems. And I think that is where the real money in the tabletop RPG world is, is in the dungeon masters, because what they do is they buy the game, learn how it works and then run players through it. And, you know, that's, I think that's very, it was a kind of a big blunder to, to, you know, that this happened. It, it really hurt, but I, I would say that, you know, this is curiously timed with the soon release of the Dungeons and Dragons movie, which is starring uh, one of the Chris's in Hollywood. Who is it? Uh, not Chris Evans, not Chris Pratt, but Chris, Chris Pine, <laughs> Chris Pine. Yeah. So now Chris Pine is going to do this Dungeons and Dragons movie, which is totally going to be mainstream, you know, and the teaser trailer were received very, very well. So I think that, you know, Wizards is probably assuming that there's going to be a big resurgence and a ton of excitement for their products. And I think they want to kind of ride that wave. So let's talk about what really grinds my gears. Something this something happened this week where we used an everyone tag. I was just, you know, I was just kind of experiencing a little bit of uh imposter syndrome and emotion and whatnot related to the the launch of our course and i tagged everybody because i wanted people to to in our facebook group in in our crowdfunding nerds community and we had a lot of of course a lot of people were encouraged a lot of people took the words and and appreciated them and you know they're like i feel the same way sometimes but then you had other people that kind of came out of the woodwork and said hey stop spamming you know how dare you use the everyone tag and um, there were, you know, I tried to treat those responses with grace, but it kind of surprised me because uh, it felt, it kind of felt like it came out of left field. Yeah, and, it uh, surprised me it, as well. 
they were very, very, uh, I mean, they hurled accusations like, um, I don't know, like rockets. Uh, you know, I, I felt like, uh, it was, it was like a very, very strong (laughs) reaction. (laughs) I went and looked to see when the last time I used an everyone tag was, and it was mid November was the last, like mid November, 2022. That would be like over two months ago, I used an everyone tag. So I, I'm like, well, why are people coming out of the woodwork saying I'm spamming? I think that there's number one, just like a general, you know, displeasure when somebody uses the everyone tag in a marketing group with a lot of marketers that understand marketing and, you know, at, at a, maybe a level that's a little bit beyond a typical consumer. But it was funny because every single one of those people that complained were people that hadn't engaged like since November or maybe never engaged. And I, I just thought that was so funny. It was like the, or the people accusing us of spam were actually the ones spamming that never contributed. So it was, it made it, me feel like. It could be that they're, uh, they're just reading content though. So they are engaged in the community. They just don't interact with it. Yeah. Maybe I think, they lurk. I, I think the, the, the issue is that when you're tagged, you then get notified every time someone comments or interacts with that post. And I think that's what annoys people. Not so much that you get this one-time mm-hmm. notification. So really, it's a problem with It's Facebook. more like the Facebook functionality. Yeah, mm-hmm. Facebook should really just give you one notification. And after that, you don't receive any. But you can yep. turn that feature off. So if you go to the notification where you're tagged, the individual them, post. there's a, and when you hover over it, and this is on desktop, I don't know if you can, I'm sure you can do it on mobile as well. Then this, these three little dots that come up, hit that. You can scroll down and say, do not receive any more notifications for this post and that's it so it's it's literally a couple of button presses and you know annoyance gone and yep. um so and if it's part of a group that you are in because you're interested in the content then you know if we use it sparingly which we do mm-hmm. and i think it's okay but i understand people being annoyed with it but um there are ways to deal with that i think it's more more of a, a it's more of a case of people needing to learn how to use the facebook features that yeah. are, that are available to them yeah. You know, I, I find Discord. So Facebook implemented this after Discord had long had an everyone feature. I think that um, Facebook is trying to give creators a way to maybe reach more of their communities that they've worked so hard to develop. Facebook is so much about groups nowadays that they really, really need the creators of those groups to keep those groups engaged so that their entire user base stays engaged. You know, it's very topically driven you know you've got groups about board games groups about video games groups about dungeons and dragons and dms and storytellers and you know whatever it is and those group admins are the ones that kind of keep the the groups patrolled that you know free of spam and you know keep people engaging you know they're creating content and driving people to that group just like we do where we say hey join the facebook uh, or join crowdfunding nurse community on facebook that's what Facebook wants to keep encouraging. And so I see the everyone tag as their first foray into trying to make that work. But I mean, there are some obvious problems. I think that you need to really give people like my solution would be to give people the ability to opt in to specific tags that would be topic driven or, or something like that, where they could receive, like they could opt into receiving content that they wanted to to receive. What we do on our discord, we have various tags that people can allow or can gain where, for example, if people want to learn about the rulebook updates for deliverance, if they are a Kickstarter backer, you know, they can learn about Kickstarter updates. And if they are a play tester, they can, you know, I'll talk to them and I, I can use those tags 
you know, at rulebook updates, at playtester, at Kickstarter backer, and it will tag all of those people. So it'll tag, you know, like a hundred, a hundred people that opted into that versus tagging everyone, which on our server is like, you know, 650 people, maybe 500 of them wouldn't appreciate the spam. Right. So I, I think face that's what Facebook really needs to do. One, maybe one lesson we can, we can learn from this is that sometimes your community will act in a way which you do not predict and mm -hmm. you have to be patient with people. And I think the, the advice I would give in this case is not, not to be reactionary, wait and calm down. Cause sometimes, you know, first reading is kind of shocking. You're like, oh, okay. Well, it's, Seems a bit over the Why top. Why are trolling me right now? Yeah, they're trolling us. Um, the temptation uh -huh. is to, you know, troll back or just kind of like brush the com the complaint aside or sort of minimize the the um, the grievance mm -hmm. that they're they're feeling. Um, when actually the the key is to try and address it rationally and or ignore it if it's you know mm -hmm. unreasonable. Yeah, you know, I actually feel um, in this case what I decided to do is you know it's like. Do we use the everyone tag? Do we never use the everyone tag? You know, there was certainly some strong reaction to it. And I look at it as though, in a very similar manner to sending an email blast. When you send an email blast, you are going to have unsubscribes. You should expect you, will, you should have unsubscribes. Some people might even file what are called abuse complaints, where, you know, maybe they, they say, I never signed up for this list and um, this is spamming me or whatever. Um, you're going to get some of that when you send out your email blast every month. But you still need to send that out every month because there are for for me, you know, for the deliverance email. I mean, I'm I'm getting two thousand people a month, or you know, an email op opening that that email. It's really really important for those two thousand people, and we have a, a list of about forty eight hundred. And you know, why would I not send an email because a few people are going to complain? So I kind of look at the everyone tag right now as you know, as long as you're not abusing it. Um, as an email blast, which yeah. you can use every so often, and you will get some people to be grumpy. But if the content is good, people will appreciate, you know, seeing the content. And, you know, there might be people who leave your group. Maybe some people left our group as a result of that. Certainly not very many. I think uh, we, we, we may have lost like two or three at the most, you know, maybe none. But um, it, it didn't make a huge dent on the group, but it made a huge dent in the engagement. So it actually, you know, all of those people that complained engaged with that post and it brought a lot more people that engaged with the post and, and whatnot. And I believe that, you know, great content kind of needs to stand on its own and, uh, most of the time, but you know, that, that really supplemented the engagement. And I think in the end, it's a good thing. And if those complainers are going to, let's say they leave the group, um, I think what that, what I would personally call that as a marketer is I would say that's more curating your group where if people aren't interested in the content, they shouldn't be gumming up the numbers in your group. Hmm. I would rather have a group of, you know, right now we have, I think it's like 810 members in that, in that group. We probably have, let's just say, you know, a group of like 400 that regularly engage. And then another, the other 400 sometimes, or maybe never engage. I want the people that never engage to like not be in the group uh, because it, it actually kind of messes with our, our, the deliverability of a single post. If more people in that group engage with it, 
it's likely to go to, to, you know, percentage wise, it's likely to go to, to, it's likely to reach further. So I don't necessarily look at it as, as a negative thing. If people are kind of like, they, they didn't no nobody said, I'm going to leave this group. If you do that again or anything would certainly be reasonable to assume that those people might, if I, if we kept it up. Uh, but I think that it definitely should be reserved, but it should, it is a tool that, that I have decided is definitely worth using at the right times. So, and if you're one of those complainers that listened, um, I'd actually like to hear from you. Uh, you know, if, if you listen to this podcast and you didn't like the everyone tag or whatever, if you don't like the everyone tag, I think it'd be interesting to have a discussion about this in the community. Yeah. So let's get into our topic at hand. Uh, the main topic is the way that I've dubbed it is five early assumptions that might kill your campaign. Number one, people want this. Number two, tons of people want this. Number three, I know my target market. Number four, I know why my customer thinks this is awesome. And number five, people want an expansion to this. Those assumptions are not necessarily true. And the bottom line is that they need to be researched, right? You can't just yeah. say it because you feel it. it. It The market will tell you how accurate your feeling was. And in some cases, it's not good. Uh, you know, the results is not good. So like a lot of game designs fail conceptually at the starting blocks. Like before they've even launched the campaign, I can tell them that their their campaign won't do very well. The um, the idea is that when you want to educate, you are at risking making the game more about education than fun. Games are meant to be fun. RPGs, video games, board games, they're meant to be fun in a box or fun in a cartridge or fun in some lines of code that you download off Steam. I don't know. When you assume that your target market is going to like the content of your game without actually doing any research, you you could be wrong. The games being a box of fun is, is important. I think there are some times where you can have like educational games, which can be fun, but they, they're, they're actually more so for educational purposes. So mm-hmm. it can't, like fun is just a, a happy consequence, but the, like the mode that people are in is I'm in education mode. You know, they're not in, right. I'm in fun mode. So it, like it, the context is different. So I think that's right. You gotta... And I think the, the danger is not in making educational games. I mean, that is a huge market, but you know, the, the danger is in trying to trick people with this candy coated shell of fun. That's the the real problem. I think when you, bait people in with a with fun and then the game is 90% education you're you're going to lose people or if you know it's it's um I'll use a, a more familiar phrase proselytizing you're going to lose a, a large swath of of market we're also starting to see this with like you know Disney and other other companies big companies where a lot of their media now mm-hmm. is really pushing a a message pushing an agenda which i think a lot of people are like hey i just want to see a story about you know, people going on goofy adventures. Like I don't want, I don't yep, want like you nailed this. it. <laughs> you know, I think and- that's exactly right. And so I think that you know, we even in crowdfunding nerds, we sometimes will turn projects down that are overly focused on, like for example, you know, environmentalism, um, like saving the planet. If you know, it's totally fine to make a game that you like regenerates the planet. I mean, terraforming Mars is a really great one about actually turning Mars into a habitable place. And that's awesome. I think that in some cases you can take it too far where it ceases to be about fun and it becomes more about trying to make sure that you are a good citizen of earth, um, in real life, you know? And it's like, 
So yeah, I think that's that's kind of the the premise. And so assumptions that might kill your campaign. Let's talk about these one by one. People want this. How do you know people want it? Because you want it? I actually think I think that's a good place to start. Because right? I think you have to be passionate about it. No matter what you're doing, it's got to be something that you want to see in the world. So it's a good, that's a good place to start. That can't be, as you said, can't be the, the extent of your market research. And neither can your, your friends and family because they're just going to tell you what you want to hear because they love you. Yeah. Uh, they they want to support whatever you're doing. So yeah, I, this is where blind playtesting really comes into to view. Like we often get uh, people, prospective clients coming into us. It's like, oh, I've been working on this game for 15 years and all my family and friends love it and I play with them. And my, my next question is always, have you done some blind blind playtesting? They say no. I'm like, oh, you, that's your next step. <laughs> that's the next thing you need to do yeah. because, you know, you're- It's like playtesting with strangers, right? Yeah. That's what blind playtesting means. It's like, have you ever had strangers who don't love you unconditionally play your game <laughs> or have you played where you're not directly involved because some people are quite bombastic and you know they're quite charismatic and they could probably make anything fun you know just because their personalities yeah. are so overwhelming um so like have you played this game with you not being involved <laughs> yep i i would say i've learned the most by far just by being a wallflower watching other people play and making mistakes and you know, trying to correct their mistakes on their, you know, in their own way and, and moving on. And yeah, I think that's super important. And, you know, another, another element of this is when you make something that you think people want, you have to be sure that it doesn't already exist in the world. So I really, really want to make this Mm -hmm. game about space wizards where, um, there's like a rebel group that is fighting against, um, a galactic empire uh, space empire. And I want to make, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll make the swords on fire and it'll be really, really fun. And we'll call war stars. <laughs> yeah, we'll call war stars. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's, that's a pretty tongue in cheek example, but there are so many, well, I wouldn't say so many times, but there are a lot of times, especially for first time creators where they're like, you know, I, I'm going to make a game like magic, the gathering, but in space. And it's like, well, the the question is, why wouldn't I just play magic instead? It's got Mm -hmm. a lot of support. It's, you know, it's, it's, I already know it's fun. And if it's like magic, but spacey, does that mean magic, but better? Or does that mean magic, but different and different doesn't always mean better. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, there are some cases where somebody will come to me with a first design. You know, I have some people that are, um, you know, now that I'm a publisher, people are, uh, submitting their game designs to me and and other things. And I, it's like, yeah, well, this is just like Marvel Champions. There's nothing like truly innovative about this, about the mechanics or the theme, other than what it just, it seems a lot like Marvel Champions with a little bit of a rougher rule set and a day and night cycle or something, you know? And so mm-hmm. I think that it's it's really important to be very well educated as a creator about what else exists out there you know i mean number one playing you know if you're a board game designer playing lots of games or or video games or tabletop rpgs playing lots of games and knowing what else exists out there i think is a cornerstone to your success as a creator you know um yeah i absolutely agree i'm I'm always a bit concerned when you know you, you hear game developers and like oh yeah i played monopoly and then one day i discovered there was a game called Catan, and i decided to make my own game like, uh-huh. really, is that the extent? Of, is that the extent of your gaming history? You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. like casual games. Like I, I, I prefer to hear someone who 
I play like mm-hmm. 40k into tournaments, like understand deep strategy. And even yep. if they're making a simple game, I think that those things are positive is to know those things and or whatever. Right. We're talking about independent creators knowing their, their target markets. That can often be a positive sign as well, though. If you see lots of zombie games, well, you know, zombie games are, are popular. You know, if you see lots of mm-hmm. you know, high fantasy games, the high fantasy games are popular. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you should, that's not a good starting point. But as you said, you need to make your thing in light of all well, these other things exist and how is yep. mine better? Because as you said, right. so many people just look at what you're doing and say, well, that exists. It's this. And it's like, for, for instance, mm-hmm. a, a lot of, when I played a lot of World of Warcraft, a lot of my friends wanted me to join League of Legends. And in my my view, well, League of Legends is like World of Warcraft, but like dumbed down. Why would I play that? It's like tiny people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you got like four, you got four abilities. Like I'm here playing a character with like 20 plus abilities. Like, well, why would I play this like, child version of world of warcraft so that was that was my <laughs> my thinking at, at the time so I, I never switched biggest mistake you ever made <laughs> you have to think what's going to be the objection so your game like if you're going to create like a magic the gathering clone your game actually has to be better than magic the gathering which is a pretty challenging or, or i'll, thing I'll to use do. a term instead of better i'll say it has to innovate on magic right i mean there are other games that you know like um the big three are pokemon magic and Yu-Gi-Oh. Uh, but you have a lot of other games that come out. Uh, one great example is Fantasy Flight Games and what they did with their uh, Lord of the Rings collect, uh, trading card game, or not TCG, the uh, living card game. They they coined this term, the LCG, the living card game, where you actually get all of the cards in the box. So you buy, and it's a deck builder, but you get all of the cards in the box, and new sets come out, which are, in essence, like you you know, the Lord of the Rings card game, you have the base game, uh, which includes all the set or all the things required to play, a couple of quests to, to go out on. But then you can get the, let's say, um, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy will be three sets, you know, one for Fellowship of the Ring, then one for the Two Towers, then one for Return of the King. And in each of those sets, you'll get new cards, new characters, new quests to go on and that, that sort of thing. And um, I thought that was really, really smart. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of like magic, but Lord of the Rings themed, it obviously, it definitely has a different, uh, some different mechanical interactions and whatnot. But I thought the real innovation of that was that all the cards come in the box and you don't have to spend a thousand dollars to finally get the fourth copy of your, of whatever it is that you needed for your deck. It's, uh, it's also cooperative and other things like that. And, you know, we've had a lot of other innovation since then. I think that came out around like 2010 and we've got a ton of innovation since then, but uh, you know, in, in that area. But the idea is that the game ne- really needs to innovate. And in order to know if something is innovative or not, you should have experience playing other games. Mm-hmm. So that's the, you want to know that people want this because it's, because it truly is innovative and because people truly do want it. I've got another assumption, which I think people can overlook. And the assumption is I can do this. Ooh, that's a scary one. Uh, what I often <laughs> see is this happens, I think, particularly with video games. You have independent studios, who are creating a video game that really is outside their scope. They are trying to create a game that it's it's too ambitious. You also see in the film industry, like independent filmmakers, they're like, oh, we're going to have this film with special effects. And to do special effects right, you've got to have a huge budget. Uh, Because you're competing with Game of Thrones. You're competing with Mm -hmm. series, Marvel films, where the visual effects are so appealing, so realistic, that that's what people have become accustomed to. So if you want to do visual effects and actually do it compellingly, you need multi-million dollar budget to actually pull that off. And it's the mm-hmm. same with video games. And I think too many video game creators, they're far too ambitious for what they're trying to do. They're trying to create like 
the next Uncharted. And like, well, you know, Uncharted doesn't just come up overnight. You know, Naughty Dog have yeah. been producing games for decades and they started with like Crash Bandicoot. You know, that's like a very mm-hmm. simple platformer. And then they kind of, you know, grew and grew and grew their games until what they are now, the, the monolith of mm-hmm. a, a production company. So game developers would do well to understand that there's a process. You don't just jump into creating a massive you know multi-dollar budget because what happens is like you can, i think one of the problems as well is that especially with video games making things look good has become easier and easier and easier because computer computing power has improved mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. then there's certain things which they don't get right so you have a game that looks great but then you see like the character movements or like trying to pick up items and it just looks like a like a playstation 2 game to be honest kind of like clanky and wooden it's like you got this beautiful like skin because the, the graphics are, are so easy to do, but then like the animations are clunky. And that then, you know, so like there's things like that where things can become, things can be too ambitious and you have to understand your limits and the scope of your work. And yeah. I would say, try to try to do something really simple. <laughs> yeah, that's why, that's why you have a lot of recommendations out there to start small with your first project. And then the big kahuna that you have all the passion for, maybe release that after you get a little bit of experience under your belt and, it, it would have probably been a good idea if I would have done that instead of crafting deliverance, which was the, the big Kahuna project. But I'm, that's what I was passionate about. And board games are a lot more simple of a production than video games are. So I think you had, you had the means as well. I think, you know, a lot of people maybe yeah. starting with wanting to do something as you did with deliverance and they, mm-hmm. they just don't have the means. They're just going to have to give up. You know? Yeah. I was like $60,000 in debt by the end of deliverance, Yeah, you know, but I was able to, I had the ability to take on that much debt. So that's actually all the debt I could have taken on. We, we made it back when we hit that Kickstarter button or that Kickstarter launch button. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely a risk. I definitely had the ability to do that. There are a lot of people that are, tr- you know, trying to make something happen and don't have the means. And I, I definitely agree with you that I can do this. Maybe um, I'm prepared to do this is another uh, another assumption that you really doesn't mean it's not true, but you really want to um, like critically think about that. Like, mm-hmm. are you truly prepared to do this? Are you truly prepared to be a business owner? We've talked about that. You know, it's like when you've successfully fund. I actually had a a post on Facebook that I posted like 11 years ago today. And it said something like, you know, I, I was actually at the time selling websites. My wife was working as an assistant director for a uh, preschool and I, you know, and so she would leave at, at five in the morning every, every day. And then I would get up and I would um, prepare and make cold calls and uh, try to sell websites. And I, I must have 11 years ago, I must have sold a website um, because, or a couple of websites in a row, because I, I wrote that you know, why is it that after you experience a little bit of success, you want to take your pet, your foot off the gas and relax, you know, and like my, my wife goes to work every day and works super hard. And here I am making a sale in the first, uh, you know, 30 minutes of the day thinking, Oh, I'll just take a break now because I pretty much did the work I needed to do for the day instead of, you know, it's like, Hey, I made a sale. Let's try to make two, three, four sales, you know? And I think that what was funny about reading that was that the the same feeling hit me again after we succeeded with Deliverance. So we raised about $314,000 in a 30-day Kickstarter. It felt like the the, the energy roller coaster was ridiculous um, going through the beginning of the campaign, which was $141,000 on the first day. And then, you know, uh, through to the end, which was like another huge um, rise in funding. 
and through the entire middle of you know just commenting and trying to keep momentum going and doing anything i could to, to keep uh backers on and get more backers and whatnot and then after i raised the money it was in my account i immediately paid off my debts and uh we had enough to actually make it and then i just thought man that was a lot of work i need a break you know <laughs> but that is not the time to take a break though and it was really kind of like you have to actually make the thing you have to finish it and that was um, a real kind of a gut check moment for me and it was just kind of funny to remember you know that that, that actually happened I, I i think that sometimes people just aren't truly prepared or maybe they they aren't willing to do what it takes and i just think to understand what it actually takes is a good idea so so let's go with the assumption that tons of people want this uh why is this something that might kill your campaign it, it boils down to you think that you're going to make a lot of money with this. That is something that is provable. You know, for example, Simon is able to make a lot of money with every campaign because they they know their target market really well. Maybe Simon is not the ideal company to use because a lot of people listening to this are going to be like smaller creators. But the idea is that even as a small creator, like for me as a, you know, first time creator, I was able to prove that people wanted this, that a lot of people wanted deliverance. And I was able to prove that by starting an email list and getting people on that list. People heard about the thing, they wanted to follow along. And I was able to build the email list to like 1100 people almost before, before I put a penny into ads. And that was just through like attending local conventions, attending just you know participating in online groups on Facebook and whatnot and sharing the the product. And I think that a lot of people are afraid to share their product, but they always assume that it's a million dollar idea or multi-million dollar idea. Not always, but you know, some people do. And in some cases, the you know, the only teacher that that is going to that is going to actually that these people will listen to is the hard knock life. You know, life will teach them the you know the customer or the market will teach them how many people want this product. And in some cases, it's not that many. In other cases, games could have a huge tail. Like, uh, you know, looking over at my game shelf, Dead of Winter right now is a game that came out a long time ago that tons of people still want. Scythe and Wingspan and, you know, those games are going to be around for a really long time. And, you know, we want we want our games to just be very popular you know, Skyrim, I have, I have a tabletop version of a game that came out 11 years ago. Uh, right now I just, it's, it's one of those things that I, I feel like you, you have to let the market prove this to you that tons of people want this, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And I think really more than financially, it's mentally don't put all your eggs in one basket, be reserved and expect your game, you know, don't expect it to just fail uh, you know, put the work in and it can succeed, but you have to let the market show you that tons of people want this. The other dangerous assumption is to look at a successful IP or product and say, oh, well, clearly there's a market for this because look, everyone is interested in this. And an example I'm, that's coming to mind is um, I recently was having a conversation with someone who was going to produce a a film or a series very much like The Chosen, which is like a, a very popular uh religious-based, uh, independent video series. And then I sort of had to explain to this person, well, you know, you can look at the chosen and say, look at this series that has been released. It's so popular. 
but then I was trying to like just reminding this individual, well, you know, that really came out of this studio called Angel Studios that had created a series called the Dry Bar, Bar Comedy, which was sort of like stand-up comedy gigs that were clean without swearing or things like that. Well, you could say they were family-friendly comedy gigs. And this promoted their app. And then, but, but before that, they had a program called VidAngel, which allowed people to uh, mute and skip certain, you know, questionable content and media that wasn't, let's say, family-friendly. So they had years of doing, and then that's, this was based off a marketing company that had run some very successful campaigns. So you're looking at the chosen. Like the Squatty Potty. Yeah, uh, Squatty Potty. Harmon Brothers, right? Yeah. Squatty so, Potty and Poopery. Yeah, which are great campaigns. So you're looking at the chosen, but there's years and decades of things building on top of each other that got them to where they are. So it's kind of like the example of looking at Uncharted, right? Oh, looking at you, I can do that. Well, that there, there's a market for that but it was built upon decades of other projects that they were able to bring and move into the space that they're currently in. So you've got to be very careful of looking at something that is successful without really appreciating the history that's behind that and right. the community that's behind that and how did that community grow? And then, so it's just something you've got to keep in mind as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you look at Ray Kroc, the the guy who took McDonald's from being a small little operation into this massive conglomerate that really was, became the model for all franchises. Dude had sold or had, had failed like 51 times in businesses. He had created 51 businesses, I think, before McDonald's, which he bought the McDonald's brothers business or like a majority stake in their business. And he was able to transform it, but he had so much experience and he knew everything not to do. Uh, by that time yeah so yeah it uh it became huge but um so that that makes a lot of sense so what about uh, early assumption number three i know my target market we've done an episode on target markets before the target market a lot of the time you know newer creators will say i'm making this for people like me and i think that that's actually a sensible way to start but you can't just leave it at that and say i'm not going to get to know my customers, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, for deliverance, I, I naturally assumed that I would have Christians that wanted a, you know, skirmish type battle or game that was angels and demons, like very thematic. And that was, you know, it's kind of what I wanted. And so I actually wanted a dungeon crawl, but had to let deliverance become what it is, you know? <laughs> um, and there were people that agreed with me, but a lot of other people that did not share my faith also agreed. And I had to kind of expand my scope to, wow, there are a lot of, you know, that I made the assumption that the only people that would like this would be Christians. And it turned out that a ton of people love it that are not Christians. And it, it caused me to reevaluate the way that I did my marketing, the, 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 you know, like we were, we used like more secular terminology in marketing and other things. And it was very successful. Like our most popular headline was the demon slaying board game. Um, that actually really surprised me. I, I naturally, I kind of figured there would be a ton of demon slaying board games out there, but there really weren't. And so I had to learn a whole lot more about my target market over time. And I think that when other people just assume they know who their, their target market is, or the, when you assume that everyone should play your game, I hate when people say that because I feel like, you know, maybe that's such a strong word, but it it really grinds my gears because I feel like people don't really know 
who actually wants it and you know the, who who wants it most there there are people that want it more than others you know talking about like zombie games people that love resident evil are better to market to than like everyone on the whole earth right <laughs> you need to know who wants your product more than anything else and i just and talk to those people other people will jump on board you know i talk to my audience and uh you know i'm 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 talking to the hardcore fans of deliverance other people are going to jump on board too but the ones that are actually going to get the word out are my most hardcore target market so i think it's really important to know yours and then related to this one is i know why my customer thinks this is awesome that is something that is really easy to get wrong you know if you're making a game tabletop rpg board game video game you can assume you know in in the let's say your game is innovative and you know it, it actually does have this element of innovation you would naturally assume that your customer thinks that that element is the awesome thing that is like the secret sauce in, in actuality you really need to just listen to your customers and hear what it is that they actually say because there are going to be so many things that surprise you along the way and that will actually shape the way that you should market the way that you should share about your product. It's smart to assume you know why your customer thinks your your product is going to be awesome, but it's very important to, as as you said, Sean, um, blind play test, and mm. then listen to what your customer says. Right? Like, can you maybe give some advice where could people possibly find blind play testers? So I might, yeah, that could be it could be challenging. The way, well, where do I find people who are willing to play my game? You know, yep, give honest feedback. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, first of all, you know, if you've got a tabletop game, it's easy enough to go to your local game store and, you know, on, on you know, find the board game night or the RPG night or whatever and play the game there. Ask your friends, ask people on social media to play games if your game is digital, you know, ask them if they'd be willing to try it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's pretty darn important. You know, show them like if, if you're a video game, if you've got a video game, show them the demo. Like give them a playable demo that, you know, that they can really sink their teeth into, or maybe a trailer, a recording of you playing a section of the demo, that type of thing gets people really excited. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to Sandwalkers and the, you know, which is a recent video game Kickstarter that we did. And one of the things that I, I think part of it is just simply demonstrating your product. I think demonstrating your product is the simplest way that I can say that's what you need to do. Um, mm. Yeah. So for the, the, the idea behind Sandwalkers was they had like a turn-based kind of pixel tactics uh, RPG. No, I don't want to say tactics, but it's, it's like a pixel RPG that's turn-based like Final Fantasy 2 or something. And they had uh, like four characters that you could recruit into your team and they were fighting against scorpions. And then there was like another scene just in a, in a GIF of them fighting against like whatever sand people and then another scene of them fighting against tree monsters and i'm like where's the boss though you know you need to show me a boss and and they had this gigantic cool crazy looking scorpion boss and i'm like just show me like minions and then more minions and some monsters and then the bam like the huge boss that you're gonna fight it's like oh that's interesting right and mm -hmm. so i think that just finding any way you can to simply demonstrate your product is is what is so key and then listening to your customer what do they like i think it's really easy to make a teaser 
trailer of awesome stuff if you've done the work to understand what your customers really like. And I do know so, that there are some uh, like Discord channels that have specific playtesting, playtesters yeah. wanted, so you can find some of those. One that just comes to mind is the one I know off, off the cuff. I'm sure there's others. Is the Christian Game Developers Con- Conference Discord. They have a specific channel, playtesters wanted. So that's a good place to you know offer your, yourself. So I'm willing to playtest. Someone will probably playtest if you play test. So there's, I think there's an element of do you want to others as you want them to do unto you. You kind of have to scratch their back and then they will scratch your back. So just keep that in mind. You might have to maybe sacrifice some of your own time and resources to play test for someone else. And then maybe yep. do an exchange. I'll play test your game. You play test my game and do that. I will say that I'm going to include in the show notes that Gabe Barrett of Board Game Design Lab, he, he has a YouTube channel and he actually has a video on this very topic and it's the best playtesting tips. So we'll include a link in the show notes. You should check that out. He gives some very good tips. I saw it the, the other week and it just came to mind as we covered this topic. So he gives some really good tips for uh, playtesting that you should think about. Yeah, I think I think the general, you know, another general bit of advice is that don't be so private with everything. Find a group of people that you can, that you can trust and then add to that group over time, uh, just in like a, a Facebook group or a Discord community or something like that, just some place that you can add people that are interested and then have them help you, you know? Um, uh, that was I- integral to the success of Deliverance. Mm-hmm. So now that this, one of the scariest ones, I think, uh, point my point number five is that people want an expansion to this. <laughs> there are a lot of people that, you know, and I've, I've done a lot of research on expansions because I myself, I've created this game, Deliverance, that is is really a kind of a game system that you can have a, a lot of variety and encounters and and that kind of thing and it's it's a system that you know hey we're fighting in the jungle now and we're fighting in 900 bc now and then we're fighting you know whatever and we can have we can create bosses and scenarios and new characters and whatnot but what was really scary for me is that when I launch on Kickstarter, you know, I'll generally learn if I have enough money to make another one, you know, if I have enough to, if I'm willing, you know, am I willing to go into debt again? Or if I made enough on Kickstarter to just kind of support the, uh, the creation of the expansion and whatnot. One of the things I find difficult, it's a really hard pill to swallow. If a game goes to Kickstarter and it, let's just say, you know, a tabletop game in particular, you know, RPG or, or board game. When you go to Kickstarter and you raise 110% of your funding goal, that is a game that either for me just didn't receive enough marketing, or maybe there was a, an issue with the offer where the people that you had on your email list chose not to back it because they felt like it was too expensive or, or something was wrong with it. But if all of those things, if you did marketing, if it was a good offer and you just couldn't get a lot of people it's possible that you just that there's not a whole lot of demand for an expansion to that game. And so I've looked at expansions with, with a lot of scrutiny, you know, the first one I ever looked at with, with a critical eye was um, Everdell. I looked at Everdell. It's like, okay, the base game made like $200,000, the first Kickstarter. Then the Pearlbrook expansion was the very first expansion made 600,000. And then the next expansion, which was like Spirecrest Belfair, that made 1.2 million. And so it, it, 
kind of like doubled in in size every time. You know, in the first case, it tripled. And then Everdell was available in retail and they got distribution deals and, and that sort of thing. And then they did the Everdell, like the entire collection thing. And that made more than 1.2 million. Don't remember how much more. Maybe it's like 1.8 or 2 million or something. A lot of people jumped into that. And then, it, you know, there was like the cooperative expansion like the co-op version of everdell where the spider queen is coming in and um i actually don't i didn't follow that one because that was very recent i i actually didn't follow that but i just heard that it existed there are so many kickstarters nowadays right and but uh, that is a game that there's clear demand for there's another game that came out that is uh, actually the very first kickstarter game i ever backed it's called the stonebound saga and i i have it on my shelf over there it's kind of like a tactical combat game uh, really, really great art and everything. Um, they made the Stonebound Saga. They raised about $100,000. And then the expansion, which I naturally assumed when the expansion hit, it would make more. The expansion made like $60,000. The Kickstarter did. And I realized that not every expansion is going to make more. I, I assumed that they would. This was back in 2015 or or so the Stonebound Saga was released, and then 2016 or 2017, the the next version was, or the expansion was released, Visions of Telios. And um, then in 2019, they released a, a game called the Isofarian Guard, which was actually the very first marketing project that we ever took on, like that I, I ever took on. It was a, a free, I did a, a free marketing effort for uh, for a friend, uh, you know, Eric Bitterman, the creator of that company, became a friend. And that was a brand new game system set in kind of the same world and it made $260,000 and they're making a print run of like 6,000 units and they, you know, and they've sold through like 5,400 of those units right now. And so it, it was something that they changed. They made a huge change. They complete, they basically had a brand new game with a similar theme uh, with, you know, set in the same world and it did really well. But I think that the market was saying, there wasn't really high demand for the Stonebound saga. And maybe it'll come back, maybe in a different iteration, maybe, you know, something like that. And it can do well. But um, I look at other games with expansions. If the original game wasn't super popular, the expansion, it's like a long shot that the expansion is just going to go bonkers. That's sometimes that's not a reflection of the quality of the game. Sometimes I think the game developer, or the game designer does too good of a job where you don't need an expansion. Like, this is it. This is this works. It's like, uh, one thing I'm thinking of is like Fly of the Concords. It's like a TV show that I think it has three seasons and it ends. Like, I, I don't feel a need for another expansion. After you watch that series, you go, yeah, it's a kind of closed story. <laughs> another one was Portal. Uh, even though I love Portal 2, I think it's a great game. I wasn't, you know, I finished Portal 1. I didn't feel like they needed an expansion or an additional game. I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a closed story. It's a closed system. It kind of, you know, there happened to be an expansion that you know I got for, but sometimes products, I think, they they kind of are they're neatly boxed in this this container, and they don't necessarily need an expansion. And sometimes maybe the, the, those expansions could be interpreted as a cash grab. I think we, we can kind of look at the um, the Lord of the Rings as a prime example of this. You know, the the Jackson films were great, but then he later he releases the Hobbit films, and like they kind of pale in comparison with the the original yeah. films he created because. They got this shorter book and they put it into like three films and it kind of 
it didn't didn't really fit. I think one film would have. It feels been, like butter scraped over too much bread. That that's a, that's a good analogy, and that, I think that's that's a case where people were really looking for an expansion of that depth. They, I think, people would have been satisfied with a single film that kind of neatly told the story. Yeah, it's like The Hobbit was like three hundred pages, so it's yeah. like it, the fact that we were able to to expand it into three movies was a feat on its own yeah but out of um, the stuff which you kind of wish they hadn't like i don't know matrix like Megalas the goblin and... king and his stupid uh what what did he say it was the line from the goblin king that was like how are you gonna defeat me and then the guy like gets the sword thrown to him and then he cuts the guy it cuts the goblin king he's like he goes, oh, oh that'll do it like, yeah that was super lame this is lord of the rings it's not it's not like comic relief here, you know? Yeah. So it requires research. It requires you to kind of critically think about the thing that you care about so much in the world. It is it, the thing that you have made, right? The Your creation, your board game, video game, tabletop RPG, whatever it is, your fancy light or the best pair of jeans ever. I don't know who's whoever's going to be listening to this. <laughs> yeah. So it just, you know, critically think about your projects and separate yourself one degree from caring about the project's existence and ask yourself those critical questions. Do people want this? Do lots of people want this? Do you know your target market? Do you know why your customer thinks this is awesome? Do you know if people want an expansion to this? And can you actually do this? You know, or are you willing to do what it takes? Uh, are you capable? Do you have the resources to do what it takes? So, and then um, I think finally you have expectations, right? Because I think some creators, they just want to create the thing that they want to create. They, they, they're passionate about it. They want it to exist. And if they have enough, get enough people behind it to make it, make it a thing that can actually be self-sustaining, great. But they aren't necessarily wanting it to be the, you know, the next Gloomhaven or the next, you know, big box game. They're just happy for it to exist and happy for themselves to enjoy it themselves, you know, almost selfishly. So I think that that can be noble as well. You don't necessarily have to but i think from a business perspective where you want to make this as profitable as possible you want to do this full time you want to i think you have to build have an empire diff- you have to have a different have mentality yeah you yep. have to have a different mentality but if, if i think it's, it's, it's fine for a lot of creators you just want to do a one-shot kickstarter campaign i want mm-hmm. this thing to exist and that, that's perfectly fine all right well hopefully this guy is this this topic gives you something to ponder and makes you think critically about your games that are in development and um, if I hurt your feelings, then Sean made me do it. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.